0: Hello and welcome to the Commune Podcast. We will be talking about Axiom Verge this time. Joining me is Adrian. How are you doing? Pretty good. And with us is the developer of Axiom Verge, Thomas Happ. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. All right. It's great to have you. So, Thomas, have you been playing any games lately?
1: Well, you know, as a developer, I hardly ever have the chance to play games, um... I did just spend an hour uh, playing Hyperlight Drifter, although I'm not really sure, you know, if I'm going to get to play it again. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's just the way things go. You know, the the last game I tried to play before this was Mad Max, and it it just took way too long. So, I don't know, we'll see.
0: The life of a developer is a busy one.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically, no matter what you do, you feel guilty because... If you're not playing games, you feel like you should be because you know you're a developer, but if you are, then you feel like you shouldn't be because you know you have work to do.
0: Oof. Uh, Alright. Next, I wanted to talk about Axiom Verge itself. Uh, I think we all noticed that this game is pretty creepy. Each area has its own unsettling and distinct sights and sounds, and we were wondering, how did you come up with the themes for the areas? You
1: know so there's a like a loose kind of history to uh the the world you're in and like what's what's happened there so the different areas kind of reflect like different parts of the history and or and different uh like functions of the kind of like complex um that you're exploring um so like starting from there like you know i had certain ideas, like, okay, this area is going to have a lot of ventilation shafts, this area should have a lot of pipes with fluid going through them, and that kind of thing. You know, some areas have ruins, and it it was more or less, you know, relates to the backdrop of the game.
0: So you were concerned with making like a believable, livable environment that had come to ruins?
1: Yeah, I mean, and, you know, not just that it came to ruins, but there's, you know, layers of history in there. Like, some of it, you could say, is ruined because of, like, warfare. Some of it is just old. Some of it is is more recent, but no one's using it because they were, you know, recently, like, the events were recent, so, you know, everyone's dead, so to speak.
0: So, um, is there also any figurative significance to the areas,
1: This is probably still more literal than you mean, but yeah, there is like an overarching theme of the interface between uh, human and machine and analog versus digital, and then, you know, the things you see in in the environment are derived from that to one degree or another.
0: I gotcha. Next, over the course of the story, Trace dies a handful of times. Uh, You could argue he, he dies in the opening sequence. He kills himself... Then Elsa Nova kills him, and maybe he dies in the end. So he dies a lot, even if even if the player doesn't run out of health. And I was wondering, is there any significant role that death plays in the story?
1: Yeah, it it, it does. Uh, you know, it's sort of barely touched upon in this game. You know, you can tell that there's themes in there because you never exactly die. Um, you know, the player's mind is is kind of like a bunch of little nano machines, but, you know, the overarching, you know, theme is, is sort of one of like, you know, what happens when consciousness ends and ceases. And it's sort of like, it doesn't, it, does it really even matter? You know, is it possible to perceive yourself as being dead? Well, no. So, you know, what happens, you just perceive nothing, or do you just like, you know, transition into a new world, you know, that has some kind of, mcguffin to explain why you perceived yourself as dying so you know there's some themes like that in there and if i make more sequels and that that kind of thing in relation to this probably those would explore it further than i did in this game there's there's kind of like too much to talk about in just one game so i just limited it to the main character and what happened to him in the past
2: that's cool
0: Sure. So there's a sense in which death and the loss of self is a transition that Trace goes through.
1: Right. And it's kind of like when you play the game, like, you might see yourself, oh, he didn't really die. But then again, that's a question, you know, like, you know, what's the difference between, say, if you die or if someone just hit the pause button and then unpaused it? Are those two separate things? So... In this kind of world, it's really, like, not going to be obvious which of those is the case.
0: I see. I th- I think I see, at least. Adrian, would you like to ask about combat?
2: So the question was about how you place enemies relative to platforms. Because with level design, especially for a Metroidvania, you know, I sort of really doubt that you sort of just randomly throw them in there. So I wanted to know, what was the thought process... ...behind deciding, you know, where to put things, in this case being the enemies and platforms?
1: Um, Well, I mean, it is really determined by, like, what abilities you have at at each point in the game. And uh, that really, like, determines, you know, how high the platforms are going to be... ...and, uh, you know, largely, like, where the enemies are going to be in relation to the platforms... ...and, you know, to some degree, like, what weapons you're going to be able to find... So, there isn't really, like, a formulaic way to go about it. It's just a matter of, like, you know, playing through and, like, realizing, okay, like, certain enemies aren't even going to be able to hit you unless they're in a certain place. You know, some enemies, you know, you should give a way to, like, be able to come up underneath them. Otherwise, you're just going to die, or some enemies need to give you a way to go behind them um, or attack them from above. So uh that kind of feeds into like where the platforms go and where the enemies are placed. Okay.
0: Something I noticed while playing the game and something I've I've read in a couple of reviews is that Axiom Verge gives you a lot of weapons, so you have a lot of uh, options for manipulating enemies and and getting them trapped behind ledges or corners or something like that. Is that what you're speaking about with giving the player different uh you know, a way to approach from behind or below?
1: Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the weapons are, are geared around that, you know, like, you know, there's the one that can, that can go through walls. um, And, you know, there's ones that can, you know, follow the walls and go around them and others that can reflect off the walls. So, you know, this kind of thing changes, you know, where you're going to think about putting enemies and also where you're going to think about uh, letting the player find certain items. You know, for, for example, like you know, there's a place where there's a big vertical corridor uh, that you, you climb up, and if you don't know the secret, then it's a big pain in the butt to climb up it. And then uh, when you're going back down again, if you explored, you'd be able to find a weapon that you know, kind of like fires downwards and creates a wall of flame. And that's like the perfect thing to use for that big shaft while you're going down.
0: Yeah, I never saw that gun, but then I saw someone using it on the, uh, I think it's the third boss, and it made really short work of it, and I was jealous.
2: Yeah, I i, I got a lot of them, but um, once you said Wall of Flame, is like, wait, I don't even remember a single fire weapon in this game, so I must have missed it.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a good, there's like 23 weapons, so it, it's kind of like only maybe three of them were actually necessary, but you know, the rest of them all have a purpose and a reason that you'd want to use them over another weapon in certain situations.
0: I was also curious, most of the areas in the game only have one boss, but then towards the end of the game, you get to Ikarma, and that doesn't have any bosses, but then you get to the final area, Mar-Uru, and that has three bosses. So I was curious how you ended up deciding to pace the bosses, especially towards the end of the game.
1: In large part, the the reason that there's more bosses in the one area and less in the other actually has to do with, uh, like, towards the end of development, I had a boss that was planned and I had actually drawn the, you know, the pixel art for it that I really didn't like. I didn't think it fit in with the storyline that well. And so, like, what I ended up doing was removing that boss and replacing it basically with Elsa Nova and using you know, the hours I planned to do to be developing that for her so I could have that different, that, like, end boss sequence that you see. So that meant the, the place that boss was going to go was going to go into uh, the, the Kerma area. Once I did that, I, you know, I still, I knew I had a certain amount of time to finish the game, so I just, like, you know, I shifted my hours from doing that boss instead of, like, making it so that I... Spent more hours to come up with a replacement for the boss. So, and then uh, it, it's kind of the same thing with the the final area. Once I changed it so that there wasn't going to be that one boss in Ikirma, it it also ended up being that I kind of changed around like wh- like when you encounter things during the game. Um, so that basically meant that you encounter the you know the sentinel towards it in the same area that you find the, the final boss. Um, and then the third boss that's in there is just kind of a bonus. The one that's a remix of the first boss? Right. I mean, he's he's more of just a way of, like, establishing, like, okay, like, these bosses aren't, you know, just unique characters. They can be kind of, like, made, you know, at at the whim of aethatos So that that's kind of why that was there, just to, like give you the feeling like, oh yeah, there like there can be more of these guys, you know, than than one of each kind. And uh, you don't you don't have to fight him, so there's that.
2: I'm so glad you said his name. Cause it makes me realize how stupid I sound that I've been pronouncing it Thetos this whole time.
1: <laughs> well I'm not sure like you know it comes from uh athetosis. so I guess it's atos or athos. Um, But it's basically Greek, so you have to ask a Greek person, which I am not, like, the proper way to say it. Yeah.
2: Other thing I was curious, since you brought up um, a a cut boss, basically, were there, like, any enemies or weapons that you decided didn't fit in the game either?
1: Yeah, like, there there was a lot. Uh, Originally, I had... Planned, I thought I would make a hundred weapons just because that seemed like a nice round number. But, like, the thing is that when you have that many weapons, it it just becomes overwhelming. Like, you would just be constantly finding weapons, and then uh, your weapon wheel would be too huge to even have a weapon wheel. So, I'd have to have like more of an inventory management, like an RPG. And I decided that just wasn't a direction I wanted to go into. Yeah, and there were. There were lots of enemies, like, both enemies and bosses that I decided I I didn't like the look of or I didn't want in there that got removed. That's kind of, like, par for the course, I think.
2: Right. So is that even the case with, like, power-ups? Like, did you have things in mind more than just the lab code and the grappling hook and things like that? Or did you get all the power-ups that you wanted to see in Um, the final game?
1: Yeah, like, I basically ended up switching certain power-ups in and out for one another, like, you know, that, uh, originally my thought was that the tendrils would be like, have more of a role and they could, like, whip out and, uh, you kind of, like, walk on them, like, you know, like on stilts and they'd augment your jump and then you could, like, climb along walls and stuff, like Dr. Octopus. Um, I was
2: about to say um, that.
1: (laughs) But, uh, that that was really a problematic thing because, like, when you go that route, you have the decision, like, okay, like, the whole rest of this game is pixel-based, so am I going to draw, like, every single possible frame of animation for these tentacles, like, and every angle they could, like, grab a surface? That would have just been, it, it would have been, like, the biggest animated feature in the game would have been that at that point. Or, like, do I want to, you know, have a be... Uh, polygonal objects, you know, and have some kind of, like, inverse kinematics going into play, and, uh, I don't know, like, the more I thought about it, the more I started, like, coming up with better ideas for things, you know, and those ended up basically just getting replaced by the lab coat and whatnot.
0: Yeah, the lab coat and the drone, and even the teleport, I find are a really appealing set of power-ups, and I like how they expand on each other, and, uh, They all have their uses, both in exploration and in combat. It's nice how that all fits together.
2: Yeah, they're definitely the things that um, make Axiom Verge uh, unique and stand apart from Metroid, because none of those things are in Metroid at all.
0: Moving on, I wanted to talk about platforming in Axiom Verge. Axiom Verge is a pretty open game. You know, you don't just usually go left to right. You can go any direction. And we were wondering... How you communicated what direction the player might want to take.
1: You you have to be sort of tricky when you're trying to steer the player different ways. I think usually the player wants to go from from left to right, just because you know in the Western world that's how we read, and then you know that's how like most video games tend to go left to right. You know, left to right, and then bottom to top. So, like any anything other than that, you sort of need to be creative and, and especially uh, you need to find a way to have them a, a encounter a thing that they want to get to but cannot in advance of them finding whatever it is they can bypass it. Um, so you never you never want a situation where like, you know, say it's a character that, you know, there's an ability where they can swim. You you don't want it to be like you find the flippers and then you find your first pool of water. Uh, you you always need it to be the other way around. You need to have yeah. the player always wondering how they're going to get into the water, um, and then they find the flippers at some other point. So you have to be very considerate of that. And then not only that, but like a lot of times players will like even if they they find the thing they need, they'll forget that that they had it or that there's a way to use it. So a lot of cases you need to basically like drop them into a pit or lock them into a chamber where, you know, the only way for them to get out is for them to, like, learn all the permutations of, of a new ability.
0: I was so glad Axiom Verge did that. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's
1: a, a lot of different things that, that come into play, and uh, you really need to put a lot of carrots in there to, like, put, like, shiny glowing items into the place that you you know, where you want the player to try to get, because otherwise they, you know, might, like, show no interest and just turn back, or they might even think that that area is just, like, part of the background and not important. So, yeah, it takes a lot of uh, thought and, like, also a lot of, like, going back and forth, like, watching people play and, you know, seeing the things that they miss and trying to figure out how you could, like, lead them the correct way instead.
0: Yeah. It seems like... uh one subtle touch in which you tried to maintain that sense of direction was just the reminders on the map screen so I would usually put those down whenever I saw something fishy
2: yeah that was a Um, a feature when I discovered it was so wonderful and then I forgot about it Yeah, Um,
1: you know I, I actually got docked like a lot of review scores were like reviewers were like oh like why is there no map reminder super metroid had map reminders why can't this game have them and uh you know, I'm thinking, well, Super Metroid didn't have map reminders, but if people <laughs> think that it did, I better have them. So, uh, so those actually ended up getting getting added in
0: later on. Oh.
1: well, I don't know if it was before the PC launch, but definitely after the PlayStation 4 launch.
0: Yeah, we're all playing on the PC version. So going a little deeper on that, you mentioned that you put shiny items wherever you wanted the player to go, and, um, we were wondering, how did you decide where to put those shiny items? You know, how did you pace them in order to give a sense of progress?
1: Like, I, I want to say that they're you know, I basically put them evenly, but it's more than just that. Like, you know, I, I sort of wanted to have every room in the game have some purpose, um, which actually ends up being like way too hard. Like, you just end up having some rooms that all they are is there's enemies in them, and you kill all the enemies, but. Yeah, I'd say, I think, like, the pacing was, it it was pretty organic. I looked a lot at, like, other games, like, you know, for example, I did look at Super Metroid and, like, see how many items they had and, like, how often they doled them out. And I sort of used that as a starting point, but then I really ended up changing a lot of things because there's actually a lot more uh, hidden things and pickups than you find in Super Metroid. So uh, then it became more of... You know, you have your main items that uh, your main abilities that let you go new places, and then there's like items that you find in between time. And it was more like trying to make sure that every time you found a new ability, that there were some good uses for that for you to find a bunch of different items using that. Uh, I think the the exception is the password tool, which is sort of like a bonus; like <laughs> it's not really needed for anything. Um, but the main ones that you find. Uh, that you, you have to find and have to use, like, each one. If you were to, like, go back, you'd, like, find that while you were backtracking, you'd find a whole bunch of new places that you'd be able to use each one. Yeah, that's an um, interesting balancing and, act you have to do. Right, and, you know, like, I had a big map, and kind of what I did was actually I numbered each of the main items, and then I numbered all the places where it would need to be used so that, Ooh. like, even before I knew what items I was going to have in the game, I had like, an idea of the distribution of things and, like, you know, a way to see, like, you know, if I made a mistake and, you know, had it be that there's a bunch of easy items that you could never, ever get until you are, like, too far in the game, I try to change that around, you know? Okay.
0: Yeah, on my first playthrough, I got a much more even sense of the pacing because I would usually get stuck. I didn't know where to go, so I did a lot of backtracking, and would uncover a good portion of the map any time I got a new item. But on my second playthrough, I went just for the critical items, and I realized the very first time you have to backtrack from one area to another comes, I guess, at about the third, a third of the way through the game, when you get the field disruptor or the high jump, and you have to go back an area in order to get the lab coat or the, you know, the teleporting coat. So I was wondering, how did you decide when to place this moment? You know, why is it four areas into the game and not three or five?
1: Um, it, I mean, it's basically just, like, giving the player progressively more complex things to you have to figure out. I mean, there is a small, you know, the, the backtracking is very small. Like, in the first room, you try to go right, you can't. So you end up having to backtrack. You know, you get the, the gun, and then you go to the right. And it gets it gets more and more convoluted after that, I'd say like by the mm-hmm. time you get the glitch ray, like that's, that's put in a place where like it takes you around in a circle to where you might've been trying to go anyway. And so like at that point, it's sort of like, okay, like you have graduated, you've gone through like the tutorial and done the basic, you know, you've learned the basic, like uh, there's hidden things for you to find and you have to use an ability to get past them. And now, you know, you're ready to have something more complicated happen to you. And that's, that's basically what that's about.
0: So, in general, you would have it so that the, the player has a short tutorial session with the item, and then you loose them out on the world. And depending on how far into the game the player is, it will be farther from the tutorial to the next important point that the player needs to use the item at least in order to progress the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a formula, but, you know, I try to keep it open to that. Right. Okay. I sort of recognize, like, okay, like, at this point, you know, the player is, uh, they're going to realize that they always encounter the, the thing that they can't get past before they find the solution. Um, so by now, like, I trust that they're good enough at it that you know when when they find something this far away from their intended goal that they'll know, you know they'll have thought like okay like, uh let's see all those places that were too high for me to jump and like I'll go back and try out every one of them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Can I
2: interject with a question? It's about the pass uh, the password thing. Basically, how did that come about, and what was it that you that you felt the need to include it into the game?
1: It's sort of like you know the original Metroid had a password save system where you could try and um, mess with it basically by like making your own passwords to see what would happen. But it was also it's also meant to be sort of like the Game Genie, um, if you remember that, or the Action Replay, or Game Shark. There were, I think there were a few different ones that were all the same sort of deal. And uh, it's it's more it's definitely one of those things that's like, more for nostalgia than anything else, you know, it doesn't, I don't really like picture it being, like, critical to the story or anything like that, that uh, Trace is typing in passwords or whatever on his gun,
2: <laughs>
1: but, yeah, I just, I thought people would like it, you know, I, uh, I wanted to give that whole, like, feeling of, you know, breaking the game and, uh, like, doing something you're not supposed to do. Right. Um, as much as I could, so that's what that was about.
2: It was cool how it still, like, fit in with the game, because you have the address disruptor, which makes things look all glitchy, so imagining if the world of Axiom Verge could also be cheated with by entering passwords, you know, that kind of thing still makes sense. Just yeah, funny.
1: I guess, like, in terms of the fiction, it's like, you know, he that, that's the code that he's writing, or, or it's at least, like, you know the the way the game gene worked was uh, it, it it would take an address of, in memory and then like a value to replace the data with. So, it it could yeah. be doing the same thing, but it's more like it's taking you know an electron out of the atoms and moving it to another place that you know something different that would work in in the real world.
0: It, and it's nice how that works into some of the things that the story discusses about one's sense of identity, and that the address disruptor and all of these glitches are kind of about losing identity and having it replaced by something that feels off. So going back to traversal in Axiom Verge, there's a long hallway in the game that connects all of its major areas. What do you see as the pros and the cons of this type of shortcut, as opposed to just having teleporter rooms?
1: The thing about teleporter rooms is that they discourage getting lost, so if you are forced to take the long route, so to speak, to get back to things, you're more likely to find, you know, get distracted and, like, try and, like, find some hidden item, um, that kind of thing, and, like, that's what it's made for, that's, like, all of the all of the enemies and such are balanced assuming that the player does a certain amount of that. I feel like, like, warping to a place is... I don't want to say like it's cheating it's it's more it's more cheating in the way that I feel like you need to go here next markers that a lot of games have or like mm-hmm. you know Shadow Complex actually had an arrow to telling you what rooms you had to go through to get to your destination I feel like it's it ties into that so I, I'd rather have any other way of doing things you know than have a a teleporter room like and if I do want a teleporter room like I definitely want it to be like It fits into the fiction, the characters teleporting. Like, I know in Tomb Raider, like the most recent one, they had fast travel, and you can go to different campsites and and whatnot, Um, but basically this means, like, you're supposed to think that she's actually walking there, but if she's doing that, you know, she's, like, fighting wolves and things like that and climbing over, like, fallen rocks that you couldn't even get to, like, get over if you tried to go there manually. So how does it happen? And that was there was always a sort of like a discontinuity to me in the game mechanics. You know, you have the mechanic of walking, and that works. So it sort of like violates it and says, "Oh, that was just pretend all that work you did. Like now you can (laughs) (laughs) teleport." (laughs) So yeah,
2: I feel like I can understand this point more. I remember I once, uh, probably two or three years ago. I was in an argument with uh, Richard Terrell over Xenoblade Chronicles. Basically, it had a lot of things that made the game snappier. But what one of the things I guess that maybe he said or maybe he didn't is that it reduced its sense of the world. If you could just skip to any part of it, if you could just switch a dial to turn it to any point in time. I think Steve told me that too, and it's one of the reasons why they are very they're very strict with that when they do that in either Metroid or Zelda which is why those fast travels and those games appear much later once you've already traversed a good portion of the world to where, you know, now it's okay. So I can... I definitely feel like I can understand this point more and where it's not just a convenience thing. It's part of a, a game and the world thing. And the things that you said about providing an opportunity for the player to get distracted and to experience other things instead of making it this mechanical, push a button, I'm there now.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, one of my formative experiences, I think, as a kid, was just being completely lost in Norfair, and, you know, the Nest Metroid had no map screen or anything, mm-hmm. you know, and if you were to look at the map, like, a lot of the rooms in there are kind of, like, nonsensical, you know, they they just exist to confuse you, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree that that's good, but, like, I remember feeling that the game felt so large and so epic as a result of just, like, how long it took me to make my way around the different areas. So, you know, I think... I kind of wonder if new gamers aren't being shortchanged by, like, how easy it is to get from place to place in new games and never have to explore. So I wanted to see what I could do to put that in there. But at the same time, like... I wanted to have something, you know, which is why I have the the head that takes you from place to place, but it still is actually, like, you're still actually traversing, you know, like, your, yeah. your character can physically get off at any point, it's just that it, it goes faster than, you know, in those classic games like Metroid and Super Metroid, where the only way is to just jump and jump until you've jumped all the way from Norfair to the ghost ship.
0: You know, there's a certain uh, satisfaction to getting on that head and shooting into the wind and seeing how fast you're going compared to your bullets
1: yeah yeah I I thought of like well should I have the bullets carry inertia with the player or should I have them like be left behind and I don't know what you see is is what you get and you can make some pretty patterns just by shooting your gun and watching how the bullets collect near each other in space
0: (laughs) I'm glad I'm not the only one who does that
1: (laughs) yeah
2: I did that too
0: What's also interesting is that, certainly, the map is dense to the extent that getting lost is always rewarding. Whether you find a new item, or you just think of a new way to traverse the land, the teleporter in specific makes traversing old parts funner, uh, just because you can pass through ledges now, and you know, a hallway that might have taken 25 seconds now takes 23, and... That's just a fun discovery in and of itself.
1: Yeah, I I did my best, you know, to try and make it so that the return journey was always much faster based, you know, due to the upgrade you found. I'm sure there's places where, you know, I forgot to do that, but everything was considered like that, and I think if I I make another game, like, probably I'll be even more, like, hyper-aware of, you know, the need to do that, so... I've definitely gotten a lot of good feedback since I've released the game, and you know thousands of people have have played it and all have their opinions. It's pretty good. Nice.
2: This one's kind of going back to the enemies, but this time it's more. like the particular enemy designs themselves. How do you decide what kind of enemies that you wanted in the game? I know you got zoomers. Some are inspired by the zoomers and the side hoppers, and I was kind of wondering, you know, deciding what you want to put what kind of enemies you want to put in the game, and how do you think about that? Because at some point, you can't just have enemies that move left and right anymore. You have to come up with, you know, something else that moves in a different way and challenges you in a different way.
1: Yeah, like, I knew I didn't want to have really complicated AI, um, especially with a side-scroller, just because, uh, like, it adds jumping into the mix, you know? So if if this was, like, a first-person shooter or a third-person game, like, you know, the expectation of modern players is that, the enemies are going to be smart enough to try and flank the player, try to get behind cover, that kind of thing. And uh, I didn't want to do that. I, tr- I wanted to try and get as far as I could with, like, you know, very simple things like, you know, the enemies that just move up and down or the enemies that just home mm-hmm. in on you. So there is a lot of repeated behavior. But you do, you do find that there's a certain amount of emergence that comes through just, like, playing with it. Like, okay, like... You know, the first time I ever made an enemy try to home in on the player, you know, it was just sort of like you can see that there's some enemies in the uh you know, the hallucination sequence that just home in on you and they detonate like bombs. Um but you get some emergent behavior if you change it to be like, well, if they get too close, they try to go away, or if you change it so that they have so much inertia that they need, like, a lot of breaking distance. Well, then you get, like, the behavior of the bats um, that fly towards you, and they do this whole swooping motion. I didn't, you know, I didn't actually need to write any code code called swoop. I just need to make them always try and get to the player, and the way they do that is they dive, and then they have so much inertia, they have to swoop. And uh, so you end up with, like, some interesting behaviors just by doing simple things. And that's kind of, like, what I, I try to do as as best as I could. The more complicated ones are, you know, like the scorpion, because it knows to jump over you if you corner it, and it knows to, like, crouch every so often, and it knows to crouch if you've, you've hit it in a place, uh, you hit it in the head, so or you hit it underneath, so now it knows it wants to crouch to block that. And, uh, and, and that's about as, like, advanced as they get. I think most of it is just trying to find simple mechanics. You know, there's the guys that they... Uh, they accelerate and then they shoot out at you and then they hit the wall and it takes them a while to recover and turn around. Yeah. You'll find that none of them are ever really trying to like get at you or flank you. I might try to do that in the future, but it's a, it's a really tricky problem to solve in two dimensions just because they need to know how many platforms do they need to jump on to get you? Like how do they know which platform they're going to need to jump on to get to the player if there's multiple platforms, but only one
0: of them would let them reach you, you know? So, Right. Alright. Getting to a more broad level, I wanted to ask what your goal was in developing Axiom Verge, and I was wondering if you would say that this game is in dialogue with Metroid, or how you would characterize its relationship to Metroid.
1: I was sort of trying to bring back or, like, elucidate the features of Of Metroid that have been kind of lost, so it's not—it's not necessarily. It was actually originally meant to be just like kind of my amalgam of like my favorite games and favorite game mechanics, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: uh, you know, it's like specifically regarding Metroid. Like, I think the main thing that I liked about that game, and uh, like also, I I guess like Super Mario Brothers, that was was kind of lost in Metroid is uh, the notion of everything being a brick. And like that kind of devolved. Like you sort of necessarily like when you get to Metroid Prime, um, where yeah. you know instead of everything being a brick, there are specific things that are highlighted that you're able to interact with, and the rest is a set piece. And then I feel like when they they went back and went to Metroid Fusion and Zero Mission, that it was sort of like. When you look at the art to those, like it's, it seems to be all around like hiding the fact that they're made of bricks. Like everything is meant to look painterly, and they, it's still tiled because that's how the engine works. But you get the feeling that uh, the designers didn't want to work with a tiled engine. They were trying to make it look as not tiled as they could. And I felt like the fact that it looks tiled was one of the strengths to it. And uh, like I feel the same way about Super Mario Brothers. Like especially with you know, if you think about Super Mario Brothers 3, like, some of the bricks come to life, you know, and some of them hit them, and a coin comes out, some of them, you know, a flower comes out, and it's very, it's communicated so well, because everything is just a square shape. So that, that's, like, the main thing that I felt, like, I got from Metroid, was that, like, you could say, like, well, you know, the fact that it's this inter- interconnected world, but that's almost more, like, in a way, that's just how games are made. Like, Metroid, you know, Super Metroid was the first, but now, you know, any action adventure always has that kind of map layout. So, I definitely was trying to think when it came to Metroid, like, how can I make like, bosses that are as cool as Metroid? I I don't think my bosses are are as cool as as Super Metroid's bosses, but I I wanted to do my best, you know? So, like, the slug is definitely, I was trying to, like, have something be, like, as cool as Kraid was, you know, like... Breed. Uh, you first you see his head, then he comes out of the ground, and he's so big he doesn't even fit on one screen. It's kind of like that. Yeah. But you know, I know people say it's like Metroid, but you know, the weapons and abilities are really not something for Metroid. Like I was, I went for something mm-hmm. a lot more action-y, So actually, like the controls and uh, the guns are they are a lot more inspired by Contra, Contra, um, than yeah, than Metroid. Like I mean, the other thing about Metroid is that, uh, you know, Metroid is this whole exercise in communicating uh, without dialogue. I guess, like, the more recent Metroids aren't, but, like, you know, Super Metroid was... uh, It had that long exposition in, in the beginning, but once you got past that, there was no dialogue, and it's... I think it's a much more contemplative, ambient, kind of, like, feeling the mood sort of game than Axiom Verge. Axiom Verge is meant to be a little more, like verbal and cerebral like there's an actual storyline and and things that you see and do feed into dialogue and story and you know that sort of thing
0: yeah trace will keep you company throughout the entire game whereas samus just kind of shuts up and you wonder what she's thinking
2: yeah except that that rare moment like the very end of fusion where she actually has her own little profile picture and she actually talks and i mean like not like talk to herself like actual talk to someone else
0: so i was wondering beyond that what would you say was your goal with axiom verge
1: i mean it it started off as a hobby you know and as a hobby i was really just trying my best to have fun you know like make a game that was fun to make and sort of epitomize like my my favorite things and games and, and that was that was really it like i didn't I couldn't even say at the time I had a goal to make money or anything because I didn't i honestly didn't think that it would so yeah that that's that was the main thing just you know to try and make something fun uh, that's fun to play and you know that that was it I did have like at the time I was you know I had these ideas i was th- i was thinking trying to figure out how to express like uh, my thoughts on, like, the nature of consciousness and whatnot. And, like like I said, like, I meant to, those sort of, like, come into play in, in sort of, like, the larger universe, but in Axiom Verge, it, it didn't really come through, like, it didn't really serve the game that well to Belaber. Is it Belaber or Belaber at that point? Um,
0: I think it's Belaber.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't really go into it, but you saw, like, hints of it, like, in the beginning when Trace... Dies in that intro sequence, and then like, you know, later on when like he questions whether he's still his self, like that kind of thing. I was actually like thinking about a lot, like how what how would I make that into a game? But I think in some ways, like the game that would be about that directly, like having mechanics about that, wasn't really the game I wanted to make anyway. Because I wanted to make a game where you explore and find things and shoot monsters and stuff at the time. So
2: right, so. What are the ways you think you might have improved on um, Metroid or the entire Metroidvania sort of design?
1: Well, it's interesting I think I mean I think like the main thing that I did was wasn't necessarily to reinvent but to just like like one of the main messages I had was like don't fight what your game is trying to communicate like don't fight it with the graphics or anything like let all your graphics and all your sound and all your art. Um, play into the game design and like try to embrace things like you know in this case like tiles were was one of the main things i was really trying to push and bring that back so to speak the idea of each each tile having properties and uh it not being something that you try to hide or or be ashamed of and uh, uh so that's i guess that's one thing you know, I, I think there's there's probably a lot of little things. Like, I, lead, I read a lot of reviews uh, where people say, like, oh, this game has, you know, it feels like a classic game but with the modern conveniences. And uh, I wasn't thinking of that necessarily when I was making it. Like, oh, yeah, the modern conveniences. But there are certain things, like, I sort of feel like the notion of the player dying and restarting, like you did never died and now you're trying again, it's, it's kind of like a weird crutch. So... I don't know. I don't think I solved it quite yet, but I like it better the way it is, you know, in this game where there's a reason that he comes back to life. I think it'd be better if, if I can make a game where like you just don't have to die but it still has challenges. You know that that's a tough one. I think a lot of like what it probably brings to the table is more like just like a message to other game developers to say like, yeah, like you can go out and make your own game, like, you don't have to get anybody's permission to go and make the game you wanted to make. You know, like, a lot of people, like, I see they get out of college, and then they try to form a team, and then they have no money, and this was more like, I didn't worry about that. I just started doing it, you know. I worked uh, all the way through on, you know, other things to pay my bills.
0: When I read your story about developing the game, it actually kind of reminded me of Pixel, and reading about him developing Cave Story in his off hours after work.
1: Yeah, and, I, you know, I think, like, I kind of want to tell people, like, in a lot of ways that was that was the best way to do it, because when you're doing that, you know, you're really thinking of this as, like, you know, this is something that's fun, and you're not entirely, like, motivated by greed, or not even greed, like, you know, if, if you're working for a commercial game company, a lot of times you're just working because you're scared of the company going under, you know, um, whereas if it's just your hobby and you can kind of enjoy it, I think it helped the game, you know, it, it benefited the players as well as the game to do it that way. And I'm hoping that we see like more and more people out there, like not give up on their dreams on the outset, like don't think to themselves, Oh, this is way too hard. I just won't even try like, Maybe now they'll be like, well, Pixel and this other guy, Tom Hap, like both made a game, so maybe I can too.
2: Yeah, it really is um inspiring to me because um making games is something I want to do as well, which is why this interview uh, I just had to jump on this opportunity.
0: All right, and one last question. This question is required of everyone we interview. When it comes to the theory of video game design, what do you consider the most important? Is it the game itself? the role of the developer or the perspective of the player i don't know i mean for me it's like 70 percent. how much
1: do i enjoy it you know like making the game fun to design and then the other 30 percent is trying to make it fun for the players because if if it's fun for the players but not fun for me then i feel like i
0: failed and i should go do some other job all right that makes sense Adrian was there anything else on your mind
2: no although it might have, have another situation where you know there's a question I forget to ask I'm like ah shit I should ask them you know some other part about the game like I don't know pixel art or something but uh, so far none at the moment
0: <laughs> all right games are complicated and uh, we could talk about them all day I'm sure
2: yeah although I do seriously want to know about the pixel art how do you do that I was like did you do that all yourself
0: yeah. I did do, like, different
1: methods for, you know, for, like, the larger creatures. I actually had to draw them with a pencil and paper, then scan them, and then, like, you know, clean up the pixels because the stuff that you scan looks, like, messy as hell. And then for, like, smaller things, I basically just went in with the mouse and clicked away. You know, for anything that's, like, 32 by 32 or smaller, you can do it that way. I can do it that way, I mean. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and you even did the sound effects on your own, too? Like, sound effects, Like, like that's something I've never done at all. Like, I don't know how you do that.
1: Uh, there is a software called uh, BFXR. I think there's SFXR and BFXR. Let's see. I can remember which one. Yeah, just search for BFXR, and what this does is basically... Give you a bunch of tools for generating blips and bleeps, um, and it's great. And once you get used to it, you get used to making a, an impressive variety of different sounds uh, just with the same waveforms. So I would largely take that, and then then I would go into like Sound Forge or something and actually, you know, add stereo or other effects to them. But <clears throat> that was the main thing.
2: Wow. So. How much time did you put into practicing for that before you really felt comfortable?
1: I wouldn't say I really practiced at it. I just started making bad sounds, and I would use them. Um, (laughs) And, like, over time, you know, I got better at it, and I could start replacing sounds. But, yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time, like, being like, oh, I need to get better at this before I can do it. You know, I just, I think, I, I felt like it was more important just to, get started and make the thing I wanted to make, and as I was doing it, you know, I got better, and then you know, of course, like, I had to go back and you know, because I hadn't been doing pixel art before, so I needed to once I got to the end of the game, go back and like, oh, I need to correct the pixel art in the beginning, because now it looks horrible to me. (laughs) And you know, the same goes for the sound effects.
2: It instills a lot of confidence, Cindy. Just wanted to let you know that.
1: To me, I, I feel like that's the main thing that Trips people up is that just, you know, it took me five years to make this game. And I think a lot of people feel like if they aren't instantaneously good at something, that it means that they're bad and they should just stop. But it's, you know, it's more like, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try again. And uh, the way I thought about it was like when I first read about Pixel, you know, I read it took him five years to make his game. And when I read that, I thought if I'd started making a game five years ago, I would have had a game now and I'd be like Pixel. So then I was like, okay, I better start making one now. So five years from now, I don't think that same thing again. And I, th- I think that's, you know, it, you know, you just find something you think you might be interested in, you might not be good at it, but if you like doing it and you keep at it, like eventually you're going to get good.
0: All right. Thank you for joining us, Thomas. Is there anything you would like to get the word out about?
1: Yeah, uh, let's see, a number of things. Uh, so one, um, Axiom Verge is coming out for uh, PlayStation Vita on uh, April 19th. Um, that will be cross by with the PlayStation 4 version. So if you get it on one platform, you get it on the other. Uh, it's also 10% off the first week. In Europe, it comes out on the 20th. Um, we also, just today, indiesox.com. Um, came out with axiom verge socks, so I think it's like twenty five dollars gets you a pack of socks like they have axiom verge socks, super meat boy socks, ultimate chicken horse socks hello, hello,
0: ah okay, so sorry about that. you were explaining indie socks and how there was a there 's super meat boy socks.
1: Uh yeah, and did did it cut out before I started talking about the Xbox One and Wii U? Yes, it is. Uh, versions okay. Um, so yeah, so for those that don't have a, a PlayStation system, um, the Wii U and Xbox One ports are in progress. Uh, we hope to have them done by the the summer sometime. Uh, we haven't like committed on a date or anything, but uh, I'm going to be at PAX East. And uh, I should have both of those platforms um, uh, with me, um, and you can play a demo of them. Uh, So come by, and um, we're supposed to even have uh, posters and
0: T-shirts there as well. So, Thomas, where can we find you on social media?
1: I'm on Twitter. I'm at Axiom Verge, and uh, the Facebook page is just facebook.com slash Axiom Verge.
0: All right. Thanks again for joining us. Have a good day. All right,
1: you too. Thank you.